Well, good evening, everybody. If we haven't been introduced before, my name is David, David Guzik. I've been here a few times. I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel at Santa Barbara and a longtime friend of your pastor, Rob McCoy, and of course, Pastor Brett as well. So I'm very pleased to be here tonight. And um, I guess, uh, God willing, and if you'll have me back, I'll be here next Wednesday night as well, right? As long as... I don't like to presume on these things, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I trust that I'll be back here again. That's right. Okay, good, good, good. And, uh, you know, Brett and Rob, they just left it wide open to me, whatever I want to do, and I thought maybe I could uh, pair a couple things together. And, and, and what I have for this week and next week, they're, they're, they're loosely paired together. But, but to me, what I really just kind of have in my mind is we just got done with Good Friday and Easter a few weeks ago, did we not? It wasn't it glorious? Isn't that just the best day of the year for us as believers? It really is. I, I think it's better than Christmas. Now, Christmas is great, but I mean, it's, it's just wonderful. It's, it's really what, what we love to focus upon. Now, being a pastor, there's a couple things that are a challenge when it comes around Good Friday and Easter time. One of the challenges is simply this, is that, man, doesn't everybody already know this? You know, and, and sometimes you think, I got to preach on the resurrection again, but from a different angle and try to find something clever. So, so sometimes you feel like, oh man, it's, the, the field is too narrow. But then there's another problem that we pastors and preachers have. Other times we look at what we have with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and it's too much to talk about. And, and, and you feel like, Oh man, I wish I could have preached on this. I wish I could have preached on this. But, but we didn't have enough services. I mean, maybe next Good Friday and Easter up in Santa Barbara, we're just going to schedule special services just so I could preach everything I want to preach about those things. But instead I thought, no, I'm going to come to my friends here in Newberry Park. And so I, I'm going I'm to present a message this week and next week. Things that I, I, on my heart for this last Good Friday and Easter that I didn't particularly have, have time to, to share. And so uh, let's pray that God does something with it. So Lord, bless your word to us here this evening. We thank you for that time of worship. And we thank you for your nearness to us and the presence of your spirit. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's someone with one right there. Because you're going to want to follow along. Uh, The the text that we have in front of us is so interesting. Matthew chapter 27. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is a person. We're going to focus in on one particular person this week and one particular person next week in the story of Jesus. These are like side characters in the whole story of Good Friday and Easter. Friends, what we want to talk about tonight is Pontius Pilate. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So the Jewish governing authorities, known as the Sanhedrin, they took Jesus, they gave him a trial of his own, they condemned him, but they did not have the authority to send Jesus to execution. Therefore, they referred Jesus, the prisoner, over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman appointed authority over that region. Now, Tiberius Caesar appointed Pontius Pilate governor a few years before this. And we know something about Pontius Pilate from secular history. 
One of the things we know about him is that he had the reputation, seemingly deservedly so, of being a cruel and ruthless man. Life was cheap to Pontius Pilate. He wasn't a sentimental man. He wasn't a philosophical man. He wasn't a seeker after truth. In that traditional Roman way, he was iron and he was fire. He didn't mind spilling blood. And as I said before, life was cheap to him. So you can imagine when the chief priests and elders of the Jewish people delivered Jesus over to Pontius Pilate and they were going to say, Mr. Pilate, we think that you should execute this man. They thought this is a slam dunk. This man doesn't care about life. He doesn't care about Jewish life. He has shown a strong indifference to anybody his entire career as a governor. This will be an easy sell to Pontius Pilate. After all, we're going to present him to Pilate as a revolutionary. Well, Pilate will be happy to execute a revolutionary. He'll be happy to execute a man of whom we say he told people not to pay their taxes to Rome. And... He'll be happy to execute a man who, and this is what they were going to claim. It wasn't true, but this is what they were going to claim, that Jesus was a king in opposition to Caesar. Now, we're going to skip over some verses because they deal with Judas, and I don't want to talk about Judas tonight. I want to talk about Pontius Pilate. Verse 11. Come to verse 11 of Matthew chapter 27. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Again, I just read those words. I, I really believe that when we read the Bible and talk about the Bible, it should be like a movie running in our mind. Now, I I, I don't say this in the sense of some like vain imagination or, you know, let's teleport ourselves. No, none of that kind of foolishness. But brothers and sisters, this really happened, didn't it? I mean, we're not talking about Hansel and Gretel. We're not talking about Aesop's fables. We're talking about things that really happened. And if it really happened, I think we honor it by just sort of picturing the situation in our mind, by allowing it to be like a movie that runs in our head. I want you to see it right there. There is Jesus of Nazareth, beaten and bloody, exhausted from being up all night and the strain and the stress of everything that's been upon him the past week. And again, like I say, he's been beaten and bound and he stands before Pilate, the governor. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Did you see what that meant in verse 12? All the while, the chief priests and elders, they're shouting out accusations. He's a rebel. He's a traitor. He says he's a king. He told them not to pay their taxes. Can you hear all those voices from the Jewish elders screaming at Pilate, telling him what to do? Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, but he answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. There Jesus stands. He is condensing the full account, Matthew does. He only tells us of the second appearance of Jesus before Pilate. It's actually a very fascinating study when you take all four gospels and compare them and fit them together carefully. What we actually find is that Jesus had 
two appearances before Pontius Pilate. Matthew's only telling us about the second appearance. In the first appearance, described in Luke chapter 23, Jesus came to Pilate, he came under these accusations, and in the midst of the accusations, Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee. And as soon as he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he realized something, that the ruler over the area of Galilee, which geographically was not Pilate, the ruler over the area of Galilee was in Jerusalem as well for Passover. And Pilate goes, oh, this is great. I can get this problem off my hands. Send Jesus to Herod. Send him to Herod. This was not Herod the Great, but one of his descendants. Send him to Herod. Let Herod deal with him. He's Herod's problem. Herod, you go deal with him. So Jesus went and appeared before Herod. Do you remember what Herod asked Jesus to do? Herod, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm quoting this from memory and just kind of from the scene. Herod said, oh goody, it's the miracle worker from Galilee. I've heard you do a lot of cool miracles. Do me a trick, Jesus, do me a trick. Jesus refused to say a single word to Herod. And Herod just said, send him back to Pilate. That's where Matthew picks up the account. So Jesus has come back to Pontius Pilate and he stands before him in this court, in this tribunal. There's Roman soldiers around. There's citizens around. There's the the, the, uh, religious officials all around. They're shouting at Jesus. They're shouting at Pilate. And then Pilate cuts through it all. Verse 11, he makes a statement. Did you see it there? Are you the king of the Jews? With that kind of Roman efficiency. That's what the Romans were all about, efficiency. Let's get to the point, mister. I heard you claim to be king of the Jews. There's only one king in the Roman Empire, and that's Caesar. It's not you. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is what the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of proclaiming himself to be, to be a king in defiance of Caesar. They wanted Jesus to look like a dangerous revolutionary that a Roman ruler like Pilate should be legitimately concerned about. Therefore, Pilate asked Jesus this very straightforward, simple question. The question is, are you the king of the Jews? But you know, I, I wonder what Pilate thought when he looked to Jesus. You know, he saw a beaten and a bloodied man. At that moment, Jesus didn't look like a Caesar. He didn't look like a king of any sort that Pilate had ever seen in his life. The Roman governor was probably sarcastic when he asked the question. Matter of fact, there's a subtlety in the Greek grammar of the original text By the way, full disclosure, I I don't know how to read Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to read the guys who are Greek scholars. And and they, they explain in their analysis of the text here that the sentence structure puts the emphasis on the word you. In other words, it's like, are you the king of the Jews? You, really? Mr. Beaten up and bloodied? The the guy with the black eye and the crooked nose? The, 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 the guy who, who's, whose head is downcast because he's so exhausted, you, you're king of the Jews? You see what Jesus said, verse 11? He looked at Pilate. I'd like to think he looked at him square in the eye. He said, it is as you said. You said it. 
There's no majestic defense, no miracle to save his own life. Instead, Jesus gave to Pontius Pilate the exact answer that he had given to the high priest previously that night. The high priest has a very similar question to Jesus. Jesus gave him the very similar answer. It's as you say. You said it. Those are your words. They're not mine, but I'll take it. This amazed Pilate. Amazed him. Look at what it says right there in verse 13. He says, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? There's all these shouts. There's all these accusations filling the room. And Jesus, he must have had a calm, a serenity, a dignity, a strength in the midst of that. It is absolutely confounding to Pilate. He couldn't believe that such a strong, dignified as man as this, as beaten, as bloodied as he was, that he would stand silent in the face of those accusations. Hey, this Jesus, look at what they're saying about you. Aren't you going to defend yourself? Isn't it that human tendency right there? Somebody says a lie about me. Man, I want to defend myself. Of course I do. In this situation, Jesus refused to. He stood there in all of his strength, in all of his dignity, so much so that, look at verse 14. The governor marveled greatly. He'd never seen anything like this before. He had seen the face of courageous fanaticism. What do I mean by that? There were among the Jewish people in Judea at that time, a group of people, look today, I'll just cut to the chase. We'd call them terrorists. They were assassins. Well, no, I'm going to take that back somewhat because as far as I know, okay, I'm going to take it back. Because in our mind, terrorist is someone who targets civilians, okay? As far as I know, these were not terrorists targeting civilians. They targeted Roman soldiers, which would be fair game. No, they would be guerrilla fighters, which is not the same thing as a terrorist. They didn't target civilians, at least as far as I know. But they were guerrilla fighters, and they were nasty. Sometimes they were known as the Sikari. And they, that was a word for a dagger that they would carry. Because a lot of times what they would do in the crowded streets of Jerusalem or other cities like that, especially at marketplaces, they would carry these sharp daggers up their sleeve. And when they got close to a Roman soldier, and if they found a vulnerable place on the Roman soldier without armor, he wasn't Arizona, they would just stab him really quickly in the crowd and then move on. These were dangerous men, revolutionaries were afoot in these days. And Pilate on many an occasion had caught these revolutionaries, had stood trial with them, and he had seen men with that strange courage that fanaticism can sometimes give them. But Pilate looked at this man. He looked at Jesus. And you know, he said, this man's no fanatic. Look at, look how clear his eyes are. He's got his wits about him. He knows exactly what he's doing. But Pilate had also seen Jewish prisoners filled with fear, terrified for his feet, their fate. How many men got down on their knees, blubbering, begging for their life before Pontius Pilate? Probably scores. Pilate had seen that plenty of times. But this was a man, he looked at him and he said, this man is not a fanatic This man is not afraid. He's not afraid of me. Everybody's afraid of me. I'm the Roman governor. This man's not afraid of me. He saw a man 
who would never beg, who would never grovel for his life. He saw a man filled with something absolutely amazing, a combination of love and strength and humility and a majestic dignity. Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus and he saw a man who was absolutely innocent and who had an absolute unshakable trust in God. No wonder. Look at it. Verse 14 again. Pilate marveled greatly. I tell you what, he had never, ever seen anything like that before in his life, and he never would again. Uh, He might see something similar with Christians who were the followers of Jesus, if they ever stood before him, but he never has ever seen anything like this before. This was different. So what does he do? Verse 15, there's something in Pilate's heart that is moved. And he says, I gotta let this guy go. No fooling. Look at it there in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. You see, when Pilate saw that there was something different about Jesus of Nazareth. Something majestic, something loving, something strong, something innocent. He said, I got to find a way to get this guy out of here. He's innocent. Aha, this is great. We do it every year at Passover time. And every year, the Jewish leaders bring to me a petition of somebody who should be let off of a death sentence in light of the fact of the wonderful festival of deliverance that we call Passover. Deliver a prisoner at the festival of deliverance. This is perfect. Pilate goes, that's it. That's my answer. Let's let him go. Let's let him be the one who gets to be released, this prisoner. So Pilate hoped that this would solve the problem for them. Now, he poses the question to the crowd. All right, everybody, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, your Messiah? Did you see the word Messiah there in verse 17? Where's the word Messiah there? In the word Christ. The word Christ is simply the Greek way of saying Messiah. So what he said is, okay, you got this psychotic murderer named Barabbas, or you've got Jesus, your Messiah. Who do you want me to release to you? You know, Pilate said, oh man, I'm so smart. This gets me out of this. I'm free clear now. Nobody wants the psycho murderer to go free. Everybody's afraid of this guy. Jesus, there's many Jews who thought he might be their Messiah. He'll he'll get released easy. I'll leave it up to the crowd. They'll, they'll, They'll do the right thing. Now notice what it says in verse 18. Did you notice that? For he knew that they had handed him over because he was guilty. I'm sorry, is that what it says in your Bible? No. Why did they hand him over? Because of envy. Now I'm going to pass over a rabbit trail that I'm very tempted to go off on at how dangerous envy is. If you think about it, envy 
was one of the prime things that sent Jesus to the cross. There was no one thing that sent Jesus across other than the love of God to, to redeem the world. But on a human level, explaining human motivations, there, there were a multitude of them. But friends, one of them for sure was envy. The text tells you right there. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. They envied him and the attention he got. Be careful in your heart about envy. I think sometimes we as believers think of envy as a very small sin and we just kind of indulge it. We allow ourselves to be very envious of other people and their situation in life and we think they have it so easy and they have it so good and why can't I have it on and on and on? And it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy. All right, it's easy for me. I don't know about any of you. But look, envy is not a small sin. Envy on a human level was one of the things that sent Jesus to the cross. But do you understand what that says to us in verse 18? Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew it. Now, he's a judge in this case. I know he's the Roman governor, but in this role, he's also a judge. If a judge knows that the accused man before him is innocent, what is that judge honor bound to do? Release him. Go your way. Gavel sounds on the desk. Not guilty. Go your way. But he didn't do that. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The religious leaders start working the crowd. As soon as Pilate offers it to the crowd, hey, everybody, what do you say? You know, I I hate to say that it's like one of those talent shows where they judge by the applause of the crowd, but it's something like that, isn't it? Hey, everybody, what do you say? Um, Who gets released? The, The psycho murderer, Barabbas, or the guy who many think is your Messiah, Jesus? Which one? Who's gonna get released? Instantly, the religious leaders start working the crowd. And I don't know. Maybe they're handing out money. Maybe they're promising favors. Maybe they're granting indulgence. I don't know what they're doing, but they're persuading people in the crowd. Say Barabbas, say Barabbas, say Barabbas. Say Barabbas, you're not welcome at the synagogue anymore. Say Barabbas, or we're gonna get you at the temple. Say Barabbas, and here's some money. Say Barabbas, and I've got some extra bread for it. I don't know what they were doing, but they were working the crowd, getting the crowd to say Barabbas instead of Jesus. And while that's happening, while Pilate's looking, he knows he's looking at an innocent man. He's marveling greatly at him. He's never seen anything like this. Suddenly he gets a message. A servant runs up to Pilate, runs up to him, whispers in his ear. Pilate, your, your wife demanded that I send this message. She demanded, I didn't want to do it, but she demanded. She demanded I come and give you this message. Have nothing to do with this just man. I imagine Pilate going white as a sheet when he hears those words. His wife sent to him a message about a dream. 
You see, in the midst of all of this happening with Pontius Pilate, when he already knew that Jesus was innocent, when he already knew that he was a man of remarkable strength and justice, uh, uh, strength and dignity, I should say, when, when he knew the real motivation behind the religious leaders, when he knew all of this, all of this, he gets this message from his wife. Can you think about it? I don't know what she saw in the dream. Maybe she saw Jesus. It's possible, isn't it? Isn't it remarkable that um, it seems like more and more in the world today, people have dreams about Jesus, especially in unreached places in the world. And, and the dreams about Jesus have a way of leading them to people who will lead them to Jesus or to the Bible or to something. I mean, this is a phenomenon that happens. It, it, it's very likely that this woman had a dream and Jesus appeared to her in the dream. And I don't know what it was. Maybe she saw an innocent man crowned with thorns and crucified. Maybe she saw Jesus coming in the clouds with glory in his glorious return. Maybe she saw Jesus at the great white throne of judgment, judging all of humanity with all of his authority. But I don't know what it was that she saw. But I'll tell you what. She woke up with her heart beating in a cold sweat. That man standing before my husband right now, he's innocent. He is, look at the phrase right there in 19, a just man. Just means he's innocent. He's a righteous man. He's a just man. He's innocent. He deserves freedom. And notice what else. The dream made her suffer. Look at it in verse 19. I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. It's not like she just says, oh, I had the sweetest dream. It was Jesus skipping through a meadow, picking flowers. Whatever she saw, it scared her. Do you want to know how bad it scared her? How many times do you think Pilate's wife had interrupted his business at a life and death tribunal with a message about a dream she woke up with? I mean, never. Are you kidding? How long could she get along as Pilate's wife if she did that every week? <laughs> Friends, this is so remarkable. This is so bizarre. It is so unusual that it had to come from God himself. God is showing something to Pilate's wife. He's showing something to Pontius Pilate. This is an innocent man. I'm telling you it again. You see it already, but I'm trying to shout it to you. You will not listen to me. This man is innocent. You must let him go. She wakes up early in the morning. By the way, it was well known that Roman officials, they did work like this early in the morning at daybreak. So she's sleeping in a little bit, not really late, but she wakes up. She, where's my husband? I got to tell him this dream. She finds a servant. She explains, she goes, you tell, the servant goes, no, I can't interrupt him. No, you do it. You do it right now. I don't care what he's doing. You tell my husband this dream. I don't know about you. Most of my dreams are entirely forgettable. They're just weird or silly or embarrassing. Most of our dreams have no significant spiritual meaning. But every once in a while, we have a dream that's important or it seems to be important. But I imagine, well, let me just speak to a, a woman who's married here. Have you ever had a dream so disturbing that you interrupted your husband at work when he was right in the middle of a life and death meeting. 
and said, you've got to listen to me about this dream. How strange. She was bold enough to send it and she simply said what? Have nothing to do with this man. Back away, Pilate. Get out while you can. Have nothing to do with him. Let him go. Send him away. Don't punish him. Not even a little. It was a warning so powerfully and eloquently given that Pilate tragically ignored. You know what I want you to think about right now here? I want you to think about how merciful God was to Pontius Pilate. God gave Pontius Pilate every possible reason to understand the situation perfectly. And he did understand it. He knew exactly why the rulers had delivered Jesus unto him. He could see Jesus and marvel at him and know that he was different. He could see Jesus and know, I got to let this guy go. He's innocent. Oh yeah, I think I got a way to do it. And he got a divine message. Is it an exaggeration to say that that dream was a divine message? He got a divine revelation through his wife and her dream saying, do what you know is right in this situation. What mercy God showed to Pontius Pilate. But, verse 20, there's a huge but in there, right? But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You see, Pilate had a weak spot. He's not unusual in this. His weak spot wasn't that he couldn't read a situation. His weak spot wasn't that he couldn't listen to a divine word given to him. The, the, the weak spot wasn't that he couldn't tell an innocent man when he saw him. Pilate knew all that. He understood it perfectly. It wasn't even that he didn't have a plan to, to let Jesus go. He didn't even have a plan. What was Pilate's weakness? The crowd. You see, the religious leaders knew that if they wanted to move Pilate, what they really needed to do was move the crowd. If they got the crowd chanting Barabbas, 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 they knew that they could prevail upon Pilate in this situation. Here was a man who knew the right thing to do. He knew it in many convincing ways, yet, He ended up doing the wrong thing, a terrible thing with terrible consequences. Why? Because he was afraid of the multitude. Look at it. Verse 21. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Messiah. They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Again, all the more saying, it's as if they're repeating. It's like a chant. It's like a slogan. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Pilate understands the situation's quickly getting out of control. He understands that now the mob is against him. He hoped that the crowd would let him off the hook. 
He hoped that the crowd would see the same things in Jesus that he saw. But the mob listened to the religious leaders who were persuading them somehow. We don't exactly know. And when they asked, when he asked, what evil has he done? They had absolutely no answer for him other than to say, let him be crucified. Now there's two things I want to observe about this. Number one, Pilate absolutely positively knew that Jesus was innocent. There's no doubt to it. John 18.38, let me read this to you. I find no fault in him at all. Wouldn't you love the judge to say that about you? Next time you get a parking ticket or whatever it is you're in court for. This is what he says here in John 19 verse 4. Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. He said it twice. Now, the gospel of John also tells us that Pilate had a dialogue with Jesus about truth. Jesus said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate responded with this cynical question, what is truth? I'll tell you what Pilate thought what truth was. Truth was the crowd. Truth was the multitude. Um, it's, uh, it's very easy. Matter of fact, it's almost pleasurable from a preacher's perspective to lay it really thick on Pontius Pilate. Pilate, you're like, the ultimate bad guy. Everybody knows you're the bad guy when you're on the screen, when you're on the stage. Everybody knows it. Then I think, hmm, have I ever known exactly what the right thing to do was? But then I refused to do it before God and man because the voice of the crowd told me to do something different. And suddenly, the comfortable distance I felt between me and Pontius Pilate just got a lot closer. You know, it's easy for me to say to Pilate, Pilate, you knew he's innocent. You knew what the true thing was. You knew what the right thing was to do. You were honor bound to do what was right and true, no matter what the crowd said. Then as soon as those words leave my lips, I realize, oh, I guess I could say that to myself as well. I guarantee it in everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be one or more times, it may happen repeatedly, but there will be one or more times where God puts you on the spot and you will have to choose between integrity to God and what you know is right and the voice of the crowd. God help us to be obedient to Jesus Christ in those moments. You know, the other thing I think of before we move on to verse 24. Notice what Pilate said, okay? Pilate said, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, the crowd, Barabbas. Okay, now in my mind, and I'm, I'm gonna speculate a little bit for me. 
grant me a little bit of license here. There's Pontius Pilate, excuse me, there's Barabbas in a jail cell, chained up. And he's listening because he knows that another man is on trial. Pilate's not shouting, probably. He's a Roman governor. He just speaks his voice as authority. So Barabbas can't hear what Pilate says. But when the crowd thunders forth its response, you better believe Pilate, or Barabbas can hear it. So what does Barabbas hear in his jail cell, chained up? Look at just what the crowd says. I'll just read it to you. Verse 21. I'm just going to say what the crowd says. Barabbas, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. And Barabbas says, man, they really want me dead, don't they? Imagine what it was like for Barabbas when the Roman soldier came up to his jail cell, unlocked the door, unlocks his chains. Barabbas' heart is beating a mile a minute because this is it. I'm going to be crucified. I'm terrified of this. I've seen men crucified. This is horrible. I don't want to do this. And then the Roman soldier says, you're free to go. Jesus of Nazareth is crucified in your place. If there was anybody new who knew what substitutionary atonement was, it was Barabbas. All right, moving on now, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all but rather a tumult was rising, a riot. He took water and he washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Did the movie run in your head? Did you see Pilate over a basin, self-righteously washing his hands and probably rubbing them and washing them for longer than he should have? Because he realizes water doesn't get this one out but I'm just going to rub my hands. I got to do something. I got to make some show, some ceremony. But it was in verse 24, when he saw that he could not prevail at all, it was out of the, 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 the character of Pilate to bend his will to the religious leader's will. But when he saw that they had the crowd on him side, he goes, okay, I'll do it. But listen, make no doubt about it. He could have chosen differently. Nobody should think that Pilate was in an impossible trap here. He could have said, I got the soldiers. I'm the Roman governor. If I think this man's innocent, he's going. And Barabbas, you go to the cross. He could have had every right to do it. Nobody should think that even though Pilate felt pressure, that he was unable to do the right thing. He could have done it, but he didn't. Instead, verse 24 says that he took water, washed his hands, And he said, it's out of my control. Listen, Jesus, it's nothing personal between you and me. Personally, I wish you no harm. But it's out of my control. The power lies in the hands of the crowd. But you know what? It didn't. Saying, I find no fault in him is not enough. Looking for a clever solution to release him at Passover was not enough. Washing his hands was meaningless. Pilate could not escape his responsibility at this situation. No way. 
He is the one who sent Jesus to the cross. There is a Christian statement of faith. It is probably the oldest Christian statement of faith outside of the Bible itself that has been repeated by Christians together in community for centuries. I mean, it it, it almost certainly goes back at least to the second century AD. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Let me just read you the first few lines. Now, remember, I want you to picture in your mind as I read this, Pontius Pilate washing his hands saying, hey, man, don't lay this on me. Don't associate me with this. First few lines of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I I don't like to exaggerate. I'm tempted to say that that line through the century has been repeated billions of times. Maybe, let's just say millions upon millions of times. Pontius Pilate, you cannot escape your guilt. You cannot escape your responsibility with this. You see, he knew the truth and he rejected it. He says, verse 24, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. No, you're not. Just saying it doesn't make it so. After washing his hands, Pilate had Jesus mocked, beaten, and whipped, um, mocking him as a king. Pilate then, one last time, stood Jesus before the bloodthirsty crowd, having been whipped, having a crown of thorns upon his head, clothed in a mocking purple robe. He stood him before, and we know this from the Gospel of John, one last time, he stood him before the crowd, and he said, Behold the man. Look at him, Pilate said. Don't you see what I see? Can't you figure this out? But they didn't figure it out. They demanded that he be crucified, and by his own choice, the one man who had the power to say no didn't do anything. Now I take it back. He did one last thing before he sent Jesus to the cross. When they crucified a man, they wrote his crime out on a piece of board. They would, um, his name and his crime, typically, they would hang it around his neck and he would carry it, hung around his neck, as he carried the cross to the place of crucifixion. Once you got to the place of crucifixion, they would take that board and they would nail it to the top of the cross. So everybody could say, oh, this is so-and-so and so-and-so and and this is his crime. Don't do this. This is what will happen to you. Do you remember what Pilate commanded to be written upon that? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Matter of fact, he commanded that it be written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew so that everybody could read it. The religious leader said, you can't write that. Don't say he's the King of the Jews. Say... He says he is the king of the Jews. And what did Pilate respond? He said, I've written 
what I've written. That's all there is to it. You know, to me, Pontius Pilate in the end is a man who displays to me something scary. He displays to me a man who got so many things right about Jesus, but in the end rejected him. What do I mean? Well, he examined Jesus. Man, I just love it if people would just look at Jesus. Just look at him. Just read about him. Just meet Jesus. He examined Jesus. He marveled greatly at Jesus. He knew that other people rejected Jesus because of bad motives and reasons. He wanted to do Jesus a favor. He received supernatural revelation about Jesus. That was the dream. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He tried to justify his rejection of Jesus. He claimed an interest in the truth. He called the attention of others to Jesus. And he even wrote out and published the truth about Jesus when he had it written out and published, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Did you know a person can do all that and still end up lost? Because you can do all that. You can know so many right things about Jesus and even advocate for Jesus, even be on his side without submitting to him, surrendering to him, and choosing him above the crowd. That's what Jesus commands of each and every one of us. Look, uh, I do not expect one bit to see Pontius Pilate in heaven. I'm not going to say it's impossible. I mean, he didn't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he repented later on in his life. Maybe he repented. I, I suppose it's possible. It seems very unlikely, but it's possible. I don't expect to see him in heaven, though. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of surprises for me in heaven. I, I remember a saintly old man said this once. He said, I expect three surprises when I get to heaven. He goes, I, I expect that there's going to be some people there in heaven that I did not expect to see. He said, there's going to be some people that I thought would see there, and they're not there. And he goes, most of all, I'm going to be surprised to see that I finally made it and that I made it there. Well, look, I, I don't pretend for us to take it as a surprise that we're going to go to heaven. But what I really want us to be impressed with, you can get so much right about Jesus and miss the fundamental surrender, submission to him, and siding with him against the crowd. If we're not willing to do that, we may end up being much more like Pontius Pilate than we ever considered. Let me close with prayer. Father in heaven, I'm just amazed at how how many ways And in what strong ways you revealed Jesus to Pontius Pilate. He knew it. But he didn't take the courage to act upon it. 
So Lord, I, I pray that you would help each of us to be people who just don't have the right facts about Jesus. But Lord, far beyond that, to be men and women, to be brothers and sisters who truly surrender to Jesus and truly will choose Jesus no matter what the crowd says. Give us that strength. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.